The Power Connect Podcast is brought to you by InnoWatts. Discover the InnoWatts difference today. This is 50. You can't really get much done in 90 to 120 days. Everything's kind of a sprint. But by 270 days, you've either built something, sold something, something better be different. And if it's not in your startup, in your career, in your portfolio, life's getting stale, you're getting beat because nobody else is standing still. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode number 50. Yes, that's right. The big 5-0 of the program rolls along on Election Day Eve. Glad to have you guys on board as we are each and every episode. And what a show we have planned for episode 50. Neil Dykeman joins the program today. And of course, Neil was so good. Not only do we have to have one conversation, one episode with him, we had to make it two episodes. That's how good it got to Neil and I. And of course, uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about Neil here in just a second. But again, I can't thank everybody enough for making episode 50 possible. Again, Neil and everybody that's been on the program thus far, we've had just a tremendous run of guests so far through these first 50 episodes. Can't thank you guys all enough. The guests, the audience, podcast partners, everybody that's been a part of this journey so far. We started this thing in June and uh, we have not stopped since. And so uh, we've done a we can't, I, I just, again, I can't thank you guys enough uh, for listening, for downloading, for interacting with the program in whatever form or fashion, all the LinkedIn followers out there, the the Power Connect folks, the Jamie Levins of the world, you guys have just been absolutely phenomenal, so I can't thank you guys enough for helping where this show has been, and again, we're only at episode 50, and it feels like we're only getting started, so again, thank you to everybody for helping make that possible. So, before we get to Neil Dykeman, let me tell you about my podcast partner, in a watts and the webinar that we've got going on this Thursday making my moderating debut look I've done almost I've done I don't know what 180 episodes so far of, of energy podcast but making my debut on the moderation front and I'm telling you right now I couldn't be more excited about breaking through with finding a rhythm forecasting and innovating in a renewable age what does that mean glad you guys asked look as infrastructure improvements and technology advancements dominate the way energy is generated and consumed the question remains has forecasting kept up with the changes? Well, find out this Thursday, November 10th at 1 Eastern, noon Central, and join Inawatts' very own Chief Innovation Officer, Krishnan Kasivi-Swanathan, as he sits down with Ruzbe Amir Zodi, Head of Supply and Portfolio Management at Rhythm Energy, on how forecasting is as complex as ever with an energy landscape that grows more diverse by the day. Krishnan and Ruzbe also tackle how to innovate and service customers with new offerings while trying to increase revenue. They'll also touch on what forecasting this winter may look like and the need for AI technology and other resources to balance the growing impact of distributed energy resources on the grid. There's also going to be a Q&A session following the conversation, and of course, the audience can submit those questions throughout the course of the webinar. It's going to be on Zoom. Register today over at innowatch.com. Wait for the pop-up and... Connect with Inawats on LinkedIn. Several links that are available, several posts highlighting the event. Click on the link, register. It's filling up fast. I get it. It's virtual. It doesn't matter. The more the merrier. It's going to be the best 45 minutes you spend on a webinar 
all week. All right, let's get down to today's episode. Neil Dykeman, serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist. He's been in the space for 20 plus years. He's a one of the original minds, really, when it comes to the clean tech revolution. Of course, uh, we're going to talk about that. And, and really, the thing about Neil that you're going to find out today, you want to be in a startup. If you're looking to become a founder, this is a masterclass of sorts. Yes, we get into a little bit of the venture capital side of things, but Neil really breaks down the nuts and bolts of what venture capitalists, certainly what Neil and his partner Craig are looking for over energy transition ventures and of course like I said for a guy that's been doing this for 20 plus years really gets into kind of the the minutiae of what they're looking for and really ask the hard questions that you know maybe sometimes venture capitalists and or founders entrepreneurs really aren't willing to ask themselves or be honest with themselves about well if you're not willing to be honest with Neil Dykeman trust me he's going to be honest with you so he we talk a little bit about his start in venture capitalism how he got his start in oil and gas also kind of how he really got his roots in Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom and how that juxtaposes and kind of how that compares to what's going on right now in the clean tech boom and really the same set of principles, his 270-day thesis slash process still factors into what he's doing today. And again, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a founder, if you're somewhere in that process, telling you right now, you're going to take a lot away from today's episode. And of course, uh, even more to gain in episode two. So make sure you stick around for that. And of course, uh, we talked just a smidge about a little Texas saying of football and kind of his three tenets, team, tech, and traction. It's an absolutely incredible interview. It's fast moving. It's again, we go a little bit longer than what we normally do on the Power Connect, but I promise you it's definitely well worth it and you won't even notice it. So without further ado, episode 50, please welcome to the program from Energy Transition Ventures, Mr. Neil Dykeman. Did you know you were going to get into oil and gas though when you went to A&M? Like what was kind of your... I was, be, I was a history major and then I did econ because <laughs> history is kind of, I finished that in like the first two semesters and and so I was going to go to law school or teach history, which would have been a really bad decision. Yeah, so I was going to go to law well, school. I can see you being a teacher, the, but... The goal was two years at A&M and then University of Chicago Law School. Okay. And I was bored, so I added a 30-hour minor in accounting and finance, which is good because that's what got me a job. And I didn't go to law school because then I was burned out. And so then I was, you know, desperate. I was taking an astronomy class in the summer and, and uh, with my last scholarship stipend, and um, I had no job. So this, this is not good. My dad is, is, is not particularly happy. So I had, I had a couple offers that were coming in. I interviewed very badly. I was blowing. You know, I must have been the worst interviewer on the planet. Hopefully I'm better these days. It's hard to believe. No, I was bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, get, I was getting turned down for second interviews for jobs that were just like, yeah, seriously? <laughs> right? A sales tax consulting company turns me down for a second interview. I don't think you're good enough, Neil. Right? You can't come help these companies figure out what, how, how much to pay on their sales tax. Right? You're, you're not good enough. Yeah. So... What do you think it was? I was a bad. I did not know how to interview. But what didn't you know how to do? I, I mean, don't you're obviously know. A, you're a smart guy. What didn't you know how to do? I don't. I had no work experience. I had. Okay. I had. I was taking. I had 188 credit hours in school in three years. So you're just. Burning I was just. Class. I was having fun. I took classes. Right then, I was. I was doing. Yeah, TAing for from really cool economists. Yeah, you know, and and so I was having blast. But and then I'd work. I went. I'd go home in winters and summers, and when I was working, I'd go work at, at a wood floor company. The people that hired me in high school, I'd just go, you know, doing warehouse work. So I had, I had no job experience. I must have been just awful. So anyway, I'm, I'm in trouble, and Bankers Trust, which is, was um, one of the more coolest companies of all time, just a really, really awesome, innovative company, 
they had an energy group. And they'd screwed up their hiring. And uh, the, the story was that head of the group in New York had basically nixed all the analysts and associates they were, they were trying to hire. And so they've got a, a few associates, a bunch of MDs and VPs, and no analysts, which is pretty insane because those MDs get very mad if they have to do their own modeling. So they needed some bodies. So they were desperate, and I was desperate, so we were a match made in heaven. <laughs> and they, had, they just finally took their headhunter, you know, and they're like, the guy who would get there, all their senior people, and like, dude, just get us some bodies, right? So he puts an ad on the A&M job line. I didn't know what investment banking was. He interviews me at the Houston Racquet Club. You know, I go and just sit there and kind of watch him, you know, and, we, and, and then we chat for a few minutes. He says, oh, all right, show up Monday. And I show up Monday, and I interviewed with every single person the end of every single interview, they asked me, don't you think you'd rather be an equity analyst? So I still obviously wasn't interviewing well, but they were desperate, right? Yeah. And so I'm sure their conclusion was, well, she, at least he'll show up, right? <laughs> He's smart and he'll be there. But, you know, I'm, I, was, I, was, I was smart enough to ask a couple of questions. I was yeah. told you're supposed to ask questions in interviews, right? You know, somebody, somebody the job, A&M Job Career Center had told me that. And so I had my little questions ready. And, and I managed to ask one of the, one of the VPs you know, that um, uh, you know, he made some comment. I said, well, you know, it, it does kind of seem like you, know, you, you do need a lot more math and stats to be good at this job. And he was an engineer, so he thought the other people didn't, didn't have quite the math that they should. And so he liked that. One of the MDs happened to be running the, uh, the you know, running the, um, the St. Francis Day for the school I went to that my grandmother founded, you know, a little private school in West Houston called St. Francis. And, and so we had a nice little connection. And then the group head who apparently had been nixing everybody, well, I asked him the only important smart question I could think of that, well, Bankers Trust is listed as being a great place to work for women. I haven't actually been interviewed by a woman. What's the deal there? And I find out later he's kind of a bleeding heart liberal. And so that was probably the right question to ask him. Had I asked it anybody else, they probably would have just get this kid out of here. So whatever it was, I survived. And I did manage to get through the, yeah, the um, uh, interview with the M&A head for BT's energy group without knowing that the word M&A stood for mergers and acquisitions. And I don't think he understood, thank God, that guy's a genius. He trained me a lot. So these, these were some amazing guys. The people who, who I worked for, they went to run companies, yeah. CFOs, like just a rock. I had no idea how good those guys were. So it couldn't have been a more perfect landing spot oh, for you right out of college. So I show up, and I just work. I lived at home. I'd go up to play Ultimate Frisbee at A&M on the weekends. I had a girlfriend in San Antonio, and, and um, you know, then I'd work. That's all I did for yeah. three years without vacation. And so what did those three years teach you? And I guess, you know, just from talking to Andreka yesterday, she talked about working in an M&A group her first two years and how it gave her lessons that she still carried today. Was there anything like that oh, in that experience? We didn't do just M&A. When I got there, it was a lucky time. So BT was a leverage lending, high yield, you know, structured credit type business. We did derivatives before people did derivatives. We were doing high yield, we were doing structured products, you know, credit, bonds, bank, all sorts of neat, interesting stuff. You know, reservoir, power, you know, kind of ENPs. I was doing reservoir modeling, working for a couple of you know, ex-oil uh, company and, and, and Ryder Scott engineers that you know, really knew their stuff. Service and supply, power companies, worked on the Enron water deal, all bunch of those Enron partnerships, really cool stuff. And then we did every product out there because then they, they bought Alex Brown. And Alex Brown was the, you know, one of the top 
small cap equities you know, shops around there. You know, so they were, they were the IPO shop for tech okay. firms. So we did some IPOs and some equity follow-ons. They bought BT, they Wolfenson and, and company to get in the M&A. And so they had a, one of the best M&A groups in the world. I worked on the Conoco Inc. IPO, which was the, uh, the biggest IPO of all time at the time, which okay. all, all of $4 billion in 1998, which they took out when, when oil was at $10. Like insane, I really must need to move that thing. But yeah, so just really cool experience. Then M and A. I think the last deal I did was, um, yeah, was was actually a distressed debt because you know the market was in the tank, and so yeah. we went from M and A to to distressed debt. Yeah, buying a, a company for Anschutz Corp. Yeah, through the bonds. Okay. Yeah, so we did everything. So I again had no idea how good this was, and then I went around and talked to um all my all my friends there, and, and I'm like, well, hey, you're supposed to go to business school. And where'd you go? Did you like it? Did you learn anything? And most of them are like, nah, but you got to do it. It's a, it's a tick box. It's, yeah. it's just a vacation. You've already learned everything you need to know. And then one of them made the comment. He said, you know, the issue is here in banking, we learn the balance sheet side of a business, but we don't know anything about the P&L side. Okay. Which is a really interesting, interesting theory. That guy has gone on to be managing director. He's a very smart guy as well. And, and it was really kind of cool. I'm like, you know what? I, I need to learn how to run a company. Right? So I went to a shop with an ex-Alex Brown partner in it that, uh, in California, a PE shop, doing manufacturing turnarounds. I was the corporate secretary and board observer for Ocean Pacific. Do you remember that brand? I do remember. But Ocean, OP? Absolutely. OP. But here's, here's my question, though, real quick. So how did you know it was time to make a move? Oh, Deutsche bought Bankers Trust and were destroying it, and all my bosses were going to quit. And I'm like, hell, i got to get out of here. Okay. Okay. And I'm, they, I'm in my third year, you know, I was, they, by that time, they liked me enough to make me a third year analyst, which is code for, we're going to keep you. And, you know, it's a real promotion. And um, um, so they, they would probably have just let me run through and be an associate without going to business school if I wanted. But I wasn't sure, certain I wanted to be in oil and gas and energy. Okay. Yeah, you know, right. I just come through 1998. WTI went from the 20s to 10. You sure? Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I need to go do something exotic. California seemed really exotic to a Texas boy. Okay. So I was going to go out for two years. Were you still living at home, by the way? I was still living at home. Okay. Right? I drove out my little Honda Accord, and I didn't have any furniture. I lived without furniture for a year. I wasn't sure I was going to be there for long. And, uh, and I wanted to be mobile. I didn't know if I was going to Dallas, New York, overseas, back to Texas. Who knows? Okay. So I go work for this PE fund. We were doing some really cool manufacturing turnarounds, but the fund was basically end of life. I didn't know what I was doing. They were, we were basically end of life and, and uh, didn't look like we we're going to be putting together another one anytime soon. It was Cowper's money, um, and it was dot-com boom. Okay. Right? 1999. Yeah. So I'm sitting in the Silicon Valley. I'm working in downtown Burlingame, living in San Mateo. I can, I can, you can almost see, you drive down the freeway, you can see Oracle and all the, all the big tech companies are right there, the northern end of the valley. And I'm working at a tube bending factory with welders, sitting there matching payables to, because the CFO doesn't know what they're doing and helping keep their cash flows straight. Like, you know, this is not the right spot. I need to either go home, and, and so I was going to go home and buy a valve company, or I need to get into tech. So I landed, bounced at a company that was behind yellowpages.com and a few others. But how, what tip the scale? What tipped the scale? Because you knew you had to do one or the other. How did that decision come? How, how did you make that decision? What was the driving factor? Dude, I was there less than a year. You know, it was the Valley. Everybody's, everybody, it's like in Houston, everybody you know, everybody is in energy. 
right? Or at least at the time. Now it's a bit more, it's quite a bit more diverse, but right. still you go through my neighbors. I, I, I know where they work, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people in energy. Right. I was sitting in an apartment complex in, you know, in San Mateo and every single one of my neighbors was in tech or investments. I go play ultimate Frisbee with people and they were all in tech or venture or startups or something or other. I am in, I'm not doing what everybody else is You're doing. You're bending tubes. I don't mind being a contrarian, but this is a lot of contrarian, and they're making a lot of money. And so I, I think I need to go where, like, go where so, the money's at. Or I need to leave and go somewhere else. Yeah. But doing manufacturing in Silicon Valley in 1999 for old school stuff was just not a very smart career move. So I was smart enough to realize that. Again, didn't really know what I was doing. Couldn't even spell venture capital. The firm I went to was um, yeah, a company called GlobalGate, which is a fund that's gone now. But it, we were the funders behind YellowPages.com and things that powered portals like YellowPages. A bunch of really cool companies. And some of the guys there have gone on to do interesting things. And um, uh, I joined the day NASDAQ fell the first time. My timing is just, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. So whatever, not a problem. <laughs> we didn't do just investments. We did some workouts. But hey, I, I, workouts, restructuring, that the BT guys are talking. Okay. So, so now I'm sitting here in the valley, and I know debt. And trust me, venture capitalists cannot spell debt. It's only four letters and they literally can't spell it. It's still catching venture capitalists. 20 years later, they still don't know what the product is or what it does to companies. Now you still use it wrong, structure it wrong. Yeah, so I- But you've got that skill set. Oh yeah, it's just debt. Yeah, I got trained. The, the credit people at BT were just lights out. Okay. I, w I was trained in credit by the best in the business. Okay. Yeah, and am I as good as the best credit guy? No. Right, there's some amazing credit people. I haven't been in that world for 20 years, but so we, we, kept, we kept doing that. So we, I was a multi-product kind of generalist and had left energy, so I was done manufacturing. I was, we, we, I was sitting, as I said, Ocean Pacific, our tube bending company, food manufacturing, did a lot of things in a very right. short period of time. Absolutely. So now I'm in tech, and the last thing I knew how to model was a reservoir model. So I'm doing depletion models in my head, and I'm looking at these internet.com boom models. Of course, first deal when I get there, I get to the Global Gate. Guy sitting next to me, and he's like, "Hey, we uh, one of our portfolio companies. Yeah, they, they're going to buy somebody. We need to go do the diligence." And when I, the reason I took that job, my future partner, long time, was a lady by the name of Jane Lindner. She'd been a venture cap, one of the first female venture capitalists, basically ever. Yeah, and she'd been doing U.S. to China deals for years. Yeah, most interesting person you'll ever meet. And so she was, you know, kind of the the COO running this running this place and then run the San Francisco office and in charge of all the investments and all that. And she needed an associate. And I looked like a halfway decent associate. And again, you couldn't get bodies in the dot-com boom. So they were probably just pretty desperate. Yeah. So she hired me. Your and timing really is impeccable. She told me later. So I, she was my partner, Jane Capital, the Jane of Jane Capital. Right, right, right? right. So she told me later that basically everybody else there wanted a very, very attractive female who was also very, very, very smart and come from a big uh, bank and she wanted me and she won because Jane gets her way. And uh, so I joined this place. Well, when they had Adelaide Stevenson on the board and I thought, well, I've heard of him. So maybe it's not too schlocky. And, and Adelaide actually is one of the most interesting people on the planet as, as, as well. Um, that, this is the guy, long story, you can go see on the Energy Transition Ventures blog. Yeah. I did an article after Adelaide died. They, this is the son, not the guy yeah, uh, who ran for president. This is his son who was a senator, two-time senator in the 70s and 80s. He invented the CRADA. He wrote the DOE Act. 
Yeah, and he wrote the um, uh, the yeah Stevenson Widor Act, which does tech transfer from every university and national lab. The reason tech transfer and TLOs exist is because of Adley, right? Wow. And they've all forgotten him. Yeah. Yeah. So they, people talk about him and his family and the legacy. Adlai invented the stuff that has saved the butt of every clean tech company in this sector, and they've forgotten him. So we wrote that article and put it up there as the, you know, okay. let's, let's walk you through the actual <laughs> invention of the Crata, you know, all this stuff you think you know. And if you go look at a Crata out of Argonne or, you know, or, or InRel or any of the others, most of them are still titled at the top, Stevenson Widler. Oh, wow. It's him. Okay. Right? He wrote that thing. So he's kind he of like the, the godfather law. of clean tech in a way. <sighs> I didn't know this at the time. I just knew that he drank whiskey and was interesting. And we talked about Asia. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But Adelaide, Adelaide was awesome. So Do this is thing. still a global gate. So first deal I get there, internet.com, my first, 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 first deal. My portfolio company is going to go buy this little company. And it's a spin out of a bigger company. And so we go over and we're like, okay, so we got to do the diligence. I'm like, great. Do they have the stuff? Where's the data? There were no data rooms, right? There were binders. This is old school. There this whole data room, docs in, that, that thing is less than 10 years old. Yeah, the, hey, startups should have a data room, great idea, very new concept. Usually you sent them a, a due diligence list. Yeah. Well, in the dot-com boom, you didn't even do due diligence lists because the deals were closing in days or weeks. Oh, so wow. they had just put together a binder of stuff and left it on the desk for us. So we go over and open the three-wing binder. There are not very many pieces of paper in this thing. Um, but there is one that is the million-dollar seller's note or note from the parent company, and we're buying the stock of this company. And I'm like, huh. And it's supposed to be paid off in, for, in, in a year. And I'm like, huh. I'm not sure. We budgeted a million dollars to pay that off. So I troop back, and I'm like, hey, did you guys know that these guys have a million dollars of debt back to the parent? I'm like, no, nobody told us that. It's not in the term sheet. Like, well, we're buying the stock of the company, right? Yeah, yeah, we're buying the stock. We just, you just give them some of our shares for their shares, give them some cash. I'm like, so you understand you're going to owe these people a million dollars the as day you, you sign, it. as soon as you sign that. And they're like, oh, we can't do that. <laughs> so the deal blows Nobody up. Nobody looked at it. It was dot-com. You think, you think these are bubbles now? The dot-com boom was awesome. Creation on steroids. So we're going to fast forward. Eventually, we're going to get to like interesting modern stuff, but develop the thesis there. 270 days. If you were doing the same thing in startup world that you were doing 270 days ago, you're dead. You are gone. Just fold up shop, stick a fork in it, go home. Startup, That's how extreme it was. Startup world, it still is. Yeah. Startup world moves fast. People talk in terms of quarters or years, but I, I think the best way for us to think about a startup life is 270 days, nine months. It's not a year. No. You can't really get much done in 90 to 120 days. Everything's kind of a sprint. But by 270 days, you've either built something, sold something, something better be different. And if it's not in your startup, in your career, in your you know, portfolio, life's getting stale. You're getting beat because nobody else is standing still. And that's what I really took out of the dot-com boom was speed kills. And speed is defined in a max of 270 days. So when you talk to startups here today and you kind of look at their, I'm a history major, remember? Yeah. I run the history of the company. I get their origin story first. And then I get the whole sorted history. Every deal, every investment, the partners. And you do the diligent style, PE style. But you don't have to do it 
level of that anymore because you can proxy it. I know what I'm doing. But you can get just pictures of what's happening when you look at the time series. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything about the technology or, the, you know, or where they're going to go. It's, it's history, right? It's not the future. But it gives you a perspective of how they got there, sure. which tells you where the bodies are buried. Okay. And then you kind of look at these, these sprints. Are they actually delivering performance in a tight time cycle? Yeah. And so, yeah, we go through these histories, these young companies, like, man, this is a five-year-old company. Do you know how many five- or seven-year-old companies go from zero inflection to big inflection with just cash or venture capitalist? It's a very low percentage, right? Yeah, there are companies, a couple of our startups are really, really young. Now, sometimes it happens. We just funded one that university spin out. Well, they've been sitting in the lab basically for several years. They, the, but the inflection point is not very far ago. So you got to go back and find those, when's the innovation, the aha moment? What changed yeah. to make this interesting? How did it come together? Is it the same people that are doing it? Okay. Right? Is the inventor there? Right? Yeah, so... And you're looking for things like, just like we were in the dot-com boom, people starting these companies, they come out of nowhere. Everybody was doing it. So the real question is, are they performing? Is it an interesting idea? Have I seen it before? And are they actually performing? And so we'll fund deals where I'm like, you know what? I, I don't think these people look very good. But, man, they're out executing what I think they should be doing. And, man, they got people on board that team that they shouldn't have been able to hire. Why are those people working for them? Why are those customers talking to them? That's interesting, that, that, that dichotomy, right? This, this dot-com boom era stuff. But I still, I still haven't forgotten that 270 days. And I'd come back to Houston, visit my friends. And I wouldn't come back every quarter, but you'd come back you know, for holidays, et cetera, family and all that. And I'd notice my friends in Houston were talking about the same stuff and doing the same thing that they were doing the last time I talked to them. I go back to the valley, like after the holiday, and the friend I had talked to just for the holiday was now doing something different or on to a new So the speed chapter. was just breakneck. Speed is breakneck. So it's taken the rest of the world decades to learn what the valley means when it says speed. Is that good or bad for business? It's great. It's okay. fantastic. Why? We only have one life to live, right? What are you going to do with it? You have, you have two choices. You can work for somebody or start something when it comes to your career. You're going to wake up, yeah, and then there, people, yeah, you'll have that little comment that nobody ever gets some, yeah, yeah, re regrets working too many hours when they're, when they're on their deathbed. Mm -hmm. They'd rather spend time with their family. Yeah. Well, I agree. I, my little girls are awesome. I spend, there's nothing better than, yeah, those little bubbly voices going and screeching and screaming and oh, running. How kids? Yeah, uh, they're seven and nine. Oh, great yeah. age. So a very screechy, runny, you know, um, bubbly stage. And, uh, but when it comes to your career... Yeah, if you're doing the same thing for 10 years, it better be a project that wins because you only got three of those in you. Yeah, think about it as the, are you a football fan? Absolutely. Okay, so half of our investment committee chat at, at Energy Transition Ventures is college football. A little bit of, yeah, of, of, of Only LA. you guys had a quarterback. <laughs> He's coming, man. He's, he's, he's coming. Well, I mean, you've paid everybody else. The least you could do is pay for a quarterback. All right. It's another podcast. I'm a big believer. Of if you got to let someone go, you know quickly whether they're a fit. What's your timetable? Oh, you'll know, you'll know in a few months at most, weeks. Really? You do. Okay. And somebody told me a long time ago, half of all employees don't work out. 
even in big companies with amazing, awesome HR departments that really know their stuff. They just, they don't. And, but companies keep them on. But once you got somebody that does, you don't want to ever let them go. What's, okay, go ahead. And I got a question. Go, go ahead with your question. What's the one characteristic that you've gone back to time and time again, that if you've got to plop a hundred grand on the table and say, this is what I'm, you know, if this guy or gal has it, let's ride with it. Above everything else, what's that one thing that Neil Dykeman's looking at? I, I think it would be the speed. Right? Just and as far as... If I had to pick one, and I won't pick one, but if I did, it would be speed. I, I want to see them... When you, show, when you meet a startup, and the next time you meet a startup, things have happened. Huh. That's interesting. Because they have no money. They have very little resources. That's the definition of startup is, I'm a company with limited resources. Yeah. So if things are happening, they're either really good, really on to something, or have something cool and sexy and awesome. Yeah. And so then you want to understand why. What, what is it that is allowing them to do stuff that they can't? So our, our view on investing in startups is, is quite simple. Team, tech, traction. In that order. Okay. okay. Yeah, write that down. <laughs> you need to remember that. Absolutely. Right? There's a whole bunch of stuff after that, but that's the big three. Okay. Yeah, and walk, we'll go walk back. Walk me through those three. So now remember, I'm in I'm in clean tech, I'm in energy. Yeah. So this ain't no SaaS company. So just because you got an awesome team doesn't mean you're not going to lose every single cent. So not only, so tech matters. Now in energy, there's a couple other things got to remember. Um, technology's cheap. There's a lot of it out there. A lot of science. Um, always a better way to skin the cat. Always a better mousetrap. Always. If the industry wanted a better mousetrap in anything, take, take an engine. If we wanted a more efficient engine, we'd have a more efficient engine. There's always been one. There's a trade-off. It's probably more expensive or, or, there's, or the friction of changing it out is hard or any number of things. But you got to be careful because everything's a little bit better. Technology tends to be cheap. It's like pennies lying all over. The, you just pick them up. Right? But you're not looking for the pennies. You're looking for the gold one. You're looking for that old gold dollar that just got dropped, not the pennies. Because yeah. there's a lot of pennies. In fact, there's a lot of dimes. Things, there's always a way to do it better. Yeah, so we're looking, yeah, you know, we're always really interested in, in that question. So the, the second kind of thing about, yeah, about energy is, well, technology may be cheap, but scale up, that's super hard and risky. Yeah. And go to market is super, super, super hard and risky. But if your technology doesn't work or is natively disadvantaged, it doesn't matter how good your go-to-market is or how good your team or what traction you have, you're done. You're in a cul-de-sac. Yeah. So we, we, we look for things that are not in cul-de-sacs that have, back to our football examples, yeah. is there a hole you got daylight to run to? If so, run downhill. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to know when that's not a hole, the linebacker's scraping. And you're going to step up and he's going to pound you. <laughs> right. Right? So, because you got to know what to play. You got to know who's supposed to block him. You got to trust your guy is going to block him, but you got to know the block is going to be there, not over to the right. Same deal. This is the inventor, this is Colsex. Investors today, and frankly, back in the day, they do silly things. Risk gets mispriced in our world on a grand scale because they don't, they don't have the history. They haven't seen people been doing the same technologies over and over and over and over again. Half the stuff that gets funded today is in a cul de sac, and they don't know. They have no idea they're sitting in a big, giant cul-de-sac. It's like they've gone into a box canyon, and they think it cuts all the way through. 
but it doesn't. And that's just because they, what, didn't do the due diligence, didn't look at the history of the company, or just don't know enough about the entire space? So when I was at Shell, and I helped launch the venture fund there, which was an awesome, fun experience, very smart people, very, very, very smart people, very, very, very nice people, big company, can't manage his way out of a paper bag, yeah, but a blast, right? And, and billion dollars of some R&D with some of the best scientists in the world. I was a, 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 a kid in a candy store, yeah? There's always this tension, because you're in a corporate, you want to put people from the inside into the venture role. And when I got there, there was like one of me, one other guy that knew venture but didn't know energy, and everybody else was from the inside. And I'm like, how's this going to work out? <laughs> right. right? Now, understand, these are really smart people. Right. Otherwise, they would not be in that job. Sure. And I remember having some conversations, and, and the, the example I'd try and give was, all right, let's assume – you're going to let me go run exploration. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, no, Neil. No. You're like, well, <laughs> hang on, hang on. I will bet you, you give me five years and enough budget to screw up and learn, I will run a great exploration department in five years. But plan on losing a lot of money in five, those first five years because I have no idea where the bodies are buried, right? So I can depend on my people and I can, you know, I can be a good manager, but still, I don't know the content. Why would you expect I'm going to be good at that? And they wouldn't, even though they think a manager can run a group if you put them in there. Yeah. Like, great, but you won't hand me exploration? No, 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 you won't. You, you, you don't know enough. All right, then why are you handing a geophysicist a venture capital job and asking and expecting them to be any good within five years? It is, it's a discipline. It's a domain. I got trained by people. Those people back at Bankers Trust, those people at Globalgate, my partners at Jane. Yeah, um, we started Jane Capital with Macquarie Bank. That was our, we were the fund advisor to Macquarie's tech fund. I got trained by some guys that have done, they're still in the business. They've done amazing business over two or three decades. Yeah, so I got trained by some of the smartest guys out there. Yeah, so you got to learn. Yeah. And I can promise you I thought I was good then. I'm a lot better now. And it took a few years before I started making stupid rookie mistakes. And when you get to energy, the VCs, and this we're on kind of third wave of clean tech type thing, which is importing a whole new wave of very, very, very good venture capitalists and very, 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 very good startup executives to a domain that they can't spell. It's the equivalent of we're handing all these clean tech investors yeah, um, an oil field and telling them, y'all need to go run exploration. Yeah. Like, okay, you know what? These people are going to top schools. They got great degrees. They got a lot of horsepower between their ears. They could do it. But the people they're competing with have been doing it for 20 years, so they're making the rookie mistakes. Yeah, and that's happening again. And it happened way, so back in the day, thin film solar. Real to real thin film solar. Bio everything. There was a point in 2010 where I, 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 I blogged that basically all the biofuels companies have now become bio anything but fuels. Because they figured out, oh, yeah, that's not good. Because they can't get the feedstock to work. Yeah. And biological processes don't like to scale up. Thermomechanical process, thermocatalytic processes don't like to scale down. Feedstock in bio cannot scale up. And it, the Venn diagram is just ugly, right? So today, so far, everything that has won in clean tech, and don't, don't kid yourself, we've, we've built some massive sectors, has all been electrochemical or electrical 
widget manufacturing driven stuff in mass manufacturing. There is not a single thing that is one with big field scale up process plant stuff. None. That's not an accident. I don't know if it's an accident or not, but that's the heuristic. Okay. So we have a couple of rules. One is don't bet against lithium. The other is don't bet against crystalline. Okay. Rules made to be broken, but still, you better be awfully sure. And then I wrote this really fun little heuristic you know, thingamajig, you know, basically to train Chell people on how to do startups and venture capital some number of years ago. I called it Neil in a Box. It was about 100 questions of all the stuff you got to ask around this kind of a modified TCOP analysis, but basically the team tech traction and, and deal and all the rest of this stuff. So you've had the team tech team traction methodology for a while. Yeah, but we, we only kind of pretend to call it that now. I mean, we, you know, we could write a book, but who needs another book? What you need is more startup founders. Yeah, even venture capitalists are kind of useless. You could do an audio book. I, I could do an audio book. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so then I did another one on how to do R&D which seems funny. I'm in one of the best R&D places in the world. Why am I talking to them about how to do it R&D? But we do it wrong because we'd compare our, our guys inside. They'd compare cost to price and they'd shift in time, right? And they would compare. So for example, you'd say, oh, my thing costs a you million know, dollars per unit or $2 a kilogram or $3 for that component. Yeah. And I'm going to do this because I'm faced the price in the market is three times that. Well, dude, are you sure that's because they're not just making a whole bunch of margin? What's their actual cost, apples to apples? And now the R&D you're doing, it's here, and you're comparing it to a current price. So, you're so most, what most people do, they'll compare current cost to current price, and they need to be comparing future cost at scale to future price at scale, assuming both the alternates and your stuff both reach scale, right? And then you need to be doing that component by component. And you got to do it and, and you got to time shift it. And then you have to run risk analysis on the component. And then you got to look at in software in Valley, usually what you do is at some point you go massively parallel. You don't stage gate. Energy, uh, in industry, we, we do stage gate. That's how we were all trained. Stage gate is one step at a time. Don't do X until you've done Y. In the valley, the way that speed happens, at some point you look at it and you say, you know what? There is nothing left to stop us. We, we see daylight. Yeah. Stop stage gating. Break each component up and go massively parallel. Push all of them at once. Now the bet there when you do that is that they're all gonna get there or that the partners that are working with you on that component are gonna get there. So you've drawn the play up, now it's time to go run it. Yes, right? And then the bet is that when you integrate at the end, it's actually going to, the, the, the putting them together part doesn't fail. And a lot of these energy questions are systems or project problems where that's actually a big, a big deal. Yeah, the balance of systems or the balance of plant, right? Oh, it's just the balance of plant. Dude, the whole freaking thing is balance of plant. Just because you can get a, a fuel cell module to work. Back in the day, what killed fuel cells and PIMS was... Number one, the spike of, of gas, because they were all going to be micro-reformer driven, but it was balance of plant. We've been able to get a stack there for a PEM fuel cell and electrolyzer for 20 years. If you wanted, if you wanted to do gig, uh, several gigs per year of hydrogen electrolysis in 2005, I, I had a stack that could do that. We were working on that business. Getting the balance of system there? I don't think so. You're nowhere close.
The tech didn't exist. The, the, the cul-de-sacs were there. Yeah, and then half those companies were building in the cul-de-sacs as, as it were. They just were building in the things that couldn't get there. And then you realize, well, what won? Well, what won was lithium-ion batteries and crystal and solar. Why? Because they got the manufacturing so big they could spread costs and do R&D and do incremental development, sustaining R&D, so to speak, differently. Yeah. And, so, and then you have guys, oh, I'm, I'm building this new battery chemistry. Fantastic, dude. Do you have $150 billion? Well, no, I don't need that to get mine to market. Dude, you are competing with $150 billion in the lithium-ion business. Yeah, so you got to beat all of them. And you look back in the day, and we'll just take a, a battery, a lithium-ion battery cell. So you got, you got an anode and a cathode and a separator and an electrolyte. Those are kind of the four main little components and stuff. Yeah. And they all push, each one of them, you get kind of a champion on them. And back in the day, I was involved with the ConocoPhillips anode and materials business. We spent a lot of time on these problems. And you, you look at the roadmaps for each component, and number one, they, the performance was amazing. The cost was amazing. Yeah, and you could, yeah, you can headroom, run room for days if you could get all the champion components and put them together. Problem is when you put them together, that anode does not like that electrolyte, or it doesn't work quite as well, sure. or it the cathode dies faster when you use the electrolyte that likes that anode or some, some issue, right? That is a, you can call it a systems issue, but it's, it's an, in, or an integration or balance of systems. But, so that should tell you two things. Number one, there is literally no functional limit to how good and cheap something like a lithium ion battery can get. And there are now hundreds of companies, if not thousands, working on each and every component with Every conceivable material yeah, and component type and design and manufacturing process by component that you can imagine. Because if you can imagine it, somebody's working on the R&D on yeah. it. Because if you can imagine it, somebody's written a paper about it exactly. and somebody else is working on it. Right? So they're pushing them all. So the fact that they don't all work together well now is why lithium-ion batteries, pick your favorite time point, cost X and only last for Y. But you can bet they're going to cost an order of magnitude less than X and last an order of magnitude longer, and they're going to be an order of magnitude better, or at least factors better. Yeah. And so you've said, this has been the performance march, but none of that can be done if you're at small scale. And the scale is in the factory, not the field. What you're talking about right now is that we, we get this kind of short-sighted, oh my God, it, we're not going to be able to make it if we don't do this now, whereas to your point, these things are being done, but maybe they're not being publicized, maybe they're not being talked about enough. But eventually, like you said, to, the, to your point, using the, the salt and sea example, it's, it's happening. The, the worlds don't talk. People do desktop research. They, they don't know. Which they, is insane, right? No, it's not insane. The, this is energy. It's global, right? If you want to do energy, you come to Houston. Okay. Everybody you know is in energy. You can put together teams with disciplines that you can only imagine in other places. You want to do tech and software, you don't do it in Houston, you do it in the Valley. Why? Because everybody you know is in it, because you can get the critical mass of the talent, and they all know where all the bodies are buried in every sector, because they've lived it. Yeah. Clean tech's a new sector, and we're now kind of combining. It's combinatorial of stuff that is global. Like, literally, how many venture capitalists have been to the Salton Sea? I mean, I'd probably say a dozen, maybe, less than. They might have driven through it on the way to Disneyland on the backside when they got, you know, or went, when went down to some conference and, you know, in, uh, but, so they haven't even seen it. How many venture capitalists have been inside a refinery? 
how many oil and gas people have been inside a solar or battery gigafactory yeah. at all. So how would they know? So they're doing desktop. Are they wrong? No, they're not wrong. They just, this is a lot of problems. These are all multidisciplinary problems. These are, these are products that are materials and manufacturing problems where the manufacturing is a function of the materials as well as the product the manufacturing. They have to be delivered through a product into a project that has to be financed to compete with a commodity. Energy is not tech. So tech in energy does not behave differently. And we're on the third generation of importing awesome VCs, awesome startup people into worlds they don't understand. And they're just like me in exploration or those geophysicists in venture. There's a learning curve. And the learning curve is about the life of a fund. Right. As one of my scientists used to say, yeah, any, Neil, anyone can be an expert on anything given five years. And his logic boiled down to it takes five years to get a PhD. By the time you get a PhD, you're a world-class expert in that narrow subject. So you should think this is a very optimistic and uplifting statement. Yeah, you can literally change everything. You can rewrite your old stripes. You can be the world expert in five years, probably a lot faster in many cases. Yeah. yeah but you can. Um, the corollary to that is, but it takes five years. Sure. Right? And some of these worlds, they have a whole bunch of different things you need to be an expert in. So the venture model has been, well, we'll just go get the best people, and they'll, they'll tell us. But if they're all experts in their little field, now you better be real good at the combinatorial, and you better not miss one. And so we'll look at deals and be like, huh, do you understand that that was tried 22 years ago? Would you like to go to the UFTO notes on my cleantech.org website where Ed Beardsworth was writing about the three startups doing exactly this in 1998? And, and then do you know why they failed? Because if you don't, you have no idea if you're in a cul-de-sac. So one of the things we look for in our, in our startups, and our, our last two young tech startups, one is a company, we're turning CO2 into monoethylene glycol. There's a company we spun out of Rutgers. Yeah, they, the inventors are the founders, which is a really big deal for us in technical businesses. Okay. Yeah, and Why? Because somebody's got to make it work. You got to get the tech to work. Yeah. Right? And I can bring, I can get the tech transfer done, but it's expensive and risky. Yeah, so if I can't get some of the techies, kind of the key original people there, it's probably not as good idea as you thought. Okay. Right? Um, and sometimes they just don't want to join. It's not their thing. They, but still, you usually need to get a couple of There's usually a, a team that kind of put it all together. You usually need to get a couple of them. So inventors are the founders. Our other company you know, um, uh, is a the little seed company we funded. Well, little. It's growing like a weed now. We moved them to Austin. We're building a plant to make solid-state transformers. They basically can build a single little box, a pad-mounted transformer-type box that will replace the tr step-down transformer at, at multi-megawatt medium voltage, replace the switchgear in front of it, replace the inverters and all the converters and the battery charger, put two dozen ports on the right side, on the low-voltage side, and software-defined AC-DC power and voltage out that right side by port at a fraction of the cost of the current technology. They're using chips. You know, the chips have finally gotten there. How'd you find these guys? 
my partner, Craig, who's the best originator on the planet. He, he was at Excel um, Partners back in the day. That's who trained him to do clean tech. Craig did exactly two deals at Excel. That's all they could get through the partnership. Sunrun and Opower, two of the category killers. And my favorite story is they turned him down for the, one, the third one in phase at a price of orders of magnitude, many orders of magnitude less than, 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 than its value today. Craig's got a great nose, and he's a great originator. He even out-originates me. Yeah, uh, which back in the day was saying something. Now I'm not, I'm, I'm not in his class anymore. But he found him. And he's like, ah, I'm not sure about these guys. It's, it's a father-son team. Venture capitalists don't like backing father-son teams. Why? Yeah. That's family, the politics. Okay. If one leaves, the other will leave. You know, just, you know, it's just the heuristics, fine. And I look at it, and I'd been in, the dri in a drives business. I've been on the board of one here in, in, in Houston doing switchgear and drives. This is a drive that replaces transformers and switchgear. Right? And we are doing conventional gear. Our guys were really, really good. Yeah, I founded a company called SmartWires doing very similar solid-state transformer type stuff to do power flow control for the transmission grid. This is a distribution version of that. Craig had been in the inverter business, so we were kind of uniquely suited to understand what they were doing. And frankly, these guys weren't showing everybody what they were doing. But you go look at it, and I'm like, where did you get your money from? The, the history lesson, remember? And they're like, Oh, we haven't raised any money. All right. Well, how'd you, have you done any work? Like, oh, yeah, we got a full-scale box sitting over there. Where is it? At Savannah River National Lab. Oh, okay. Who funded this? Savannah River National Lab and DOE and a few other people. Oh, okay. Um, more than once. Yeah, yeah, over the last several years. Where did you all come from? Oh, we came from Tico Westinghouse. Well, that's a, we were the R&D guys. We built a power quality business there. Why didn't you do this there? Oh, they didn't want to. So we left to do our own. Okay. Oh, you want to see, uh, see our, our report? Sure. They send me over the DOE roadmap for SSTs written by them and the guy at Savannah River National Lab. As we start talking about the other programs in SSTs, and I come from that world, so we know not a lot of them. I don't know them all. These guys know everybody. They've been involved. It's a very small world. So I'm looking, and then I'm looking at their backgrounds. So the next thing I do is one of the things my scientists used to taught me. I just go pull their patents. Not the company's patents, their patents. Yeah. And I start reading them. And I'm, I'm a history major, right? So... Venture capitalists don't go read people's patents. So that's minion work. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, damn, that's a long patent list. This founding team that they've got together there, yeah, they got like 80, 100 patents between them. These people are smart. They know their stuff. They're in this industry. And so then I go get the CTO from you know, the company I used to be on the board of and bring him in and say, hey, can you help me figure this out? Is this stuff, does it actually work? Right? So we have the network. Back to our, we have our cleantech.org network, which really is just, a big, massive list of people, yeah, and a few events and stuff we run these days. But we can get anybody we need to help, and we usually know them on a first-name basis. It's the, oh, I've got a guy. But I don't have just a guy for, I've got a guy, we've got one of the best guys for low-voltage yeah, inverters on the planet. We had some of the best guys for EV fast chargers, which is what they decided to go after. We got some of the best guys for drive, some of the best guys for switch gear. We got some of the best guys, just period. I guarantee you there's not a single venture capitalist in this country that had on their first order Rolodex people they trusted that knew that technology and that application as well as our team did. So in a deal like that, I, I, I told them after the first call, we, we want to do this deal. I, I need to know it works. I need to check it. I need, right? I need to get info from you. Um, I need to kick my tires. But yeah, there is something here. And I told Craig Zapsley, he says, man, this, you know, this deck's kind of ugly. You know, they just, they don't seem to have the polish. And I'm like, I don't care. Because <laughs> you knew. Well, 
One of, my, one of those VPs that trained me back at Bankers Trust, he used to say, Neil, in those big old oil fields, there's always more. So if you're going to bet, bet on the well in the big old oil fields that says there's a big play they found. Don't bet on the well on the new oil field that nobody's ever drilled. It may be true, but in those big old oil fields, the big massive ones, there's always, there's always some improvements some more. It's similar to in a factory, don't bet that the factory can't ring a little bit out if it's sitting at gigawatts per year. In a little one, it's brand new, okay, be careful with all their assumptions yeah, um, and make sure they've got a hard PO on that, on that component at that scale. So the same thing is true here. You see a stack load of patents. Yeah, um, uh, you see a team that's like every technical person on this group, they're sharp. Yeah. They're good, right? Um, you see a, yeah. Um, uh, the credibility the from credibility. the DOE. <laughs> of who's funded them, right. what they've done with their money, they built hardware. Is everything finished? No, it's still taking us a year to get the right product out and get up and run and get a factory built and all that sort of thing. Work is hard, Yeah. but it's like, yep, and they have the pieces. So do these guys know how to go run a startup? Well, every single company we've funded in this fund and the next one we are, we have a term sheet out to right now and Knock on wood, they'll accept it because we're in love with them. Um, they're all first-time CEOs. And they are all very different backgrounds. And they're ranging from their 30s to their 60s. And we don't care. It doesn't matter. Yeah, um, team tech traction. Some of these are teams that Other Valley VCs be all over. And, and some of them are teams that Other Valley VCs say, you know, it doesn't look like my model. It's like, dude. Yeah. Did you look at the product? So you judge a cow by its calf, venture capitalists by their CEOs in their portfolio, and a CEO by their team. And so when you look at uh, people, and they've, they've been able to attract people that are just, oh my God, why are those people working for them at this stage? There's something there. And so you give them, you give them a leash. You can, and if they're coachable, you can train them. And if they're not coachable, you bring in another CEO. So you just ask the question up front. You, know, you push them. Guys, it's, can we go build this business? But in, in SaaS, this model would die because SaaS is all, they, there's this whole like neat repeatable model about how you do pre-seed and seed and the minimum viable product and the test and the ARR. They got, they got whole metrics and stuff. It's very, very fun. Yeah. Um, but that presupposes that if you can think it, you can build it. This is energy, right? Just because you can think you want an SST doesn't mean you can build it, let alone that your design will last, let alone that your design can get the costs out, let alone that you've productized your design right, let alone that you've found product market fit. So every other venture capitalist in this world is worried about product market fit. I don't give a crap about product market fit. It is fourth on my list. It may be even be after a well-formed deal because if the tech is awesome and the team can ball and it's really advantaged, Product market fit may be findable. And if the tech is in a cul-de-sac, it doesn't matter how good the team is. What are they going to do? Spend all my money and then they're going to go reinvent a new piece of tech? They're going to pivot by starting the R&D over. Great. That's not a pivot. That's a restart. Those ain't the same thing. A pivot is different. 
Thank you so much for that, Mr. Neil Dykeman. Don't forget, part two of the Neil Dykeman interview is going to go down on Friday, so be sure, or it's going to be episode 52, so if you listen to it in any form or fashion, or if you listen to this all over the place, just be ready. Episode 52 is going to be part two. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up. Again, you can catch all the episodes over at thepowerconnect.net, Apple Podcasts, as well as Spotify, and of course Google. If you listen to us, and we know a lot of you do on Apple, give us a five-star rating, listen to the program in its entirety. It helps with the algorithm, and we just think we do a good job. So make sure you do that as well. Coming up very soon on the program this week, we've got Harold Overholm, CEO of Alight, one of the leading PPA uh, producers in the entire European region. we got Sid Kitson, from, uh, founder of Babcock Ranch, when half of uh, Florida was without power after Hurricane Ian, guess who wasn't? Babcock Ranch. Sid Kitson, also a uh, former NFL lineman and uh, former Green Bay Packers. So uh, we got to ask him what the hell's going on in Green Bay. Cat Day from Etitude. All I'm going to say is this. Bamboo's better in bed. At least that's what Cat has to say. We'll talk to her about that. Buck Martinez from the Aces program. An absolutely incredible conversation with him. We talk a little baseball, but more importantly, we talk about what's going on in South Florida. A lot of Florida vibes here lately, folks. Nothing wrong with that, but he's a former uh, Florida Power and Light executive. Back when uh, renewable energy really wasn't that cool to do, Buck has been a proponent of that for quite some time now. And last but certainly not least, Brad Wills from Schneider Electric. An absolute powerhouse episode about what Schneider Electric, you know, the biggest company you've ever heard of, you've never heard of, right? What they've done in the commercial space and what they're about to do in the residential space, you definitely do not want to miss that. And again, one more time, don't forget this Thursday, finding a rhythm, forecasting and innovating in a renewable age, making my moderating debut. I'm excited about it. You should be too. This Thursday, November 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern, noon central. Go to innowatts.com, register, wait for the pop-up and or find them on LinkedIn. Follow subscribe, register. I'll see you on Thursday. Can't wait for that. This has been the Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is